Let's pray together. Father, speak your words and open our ears to hear. Any of my words that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain. It's in you we hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Today, as you might have guessed, we are back in the book of Acts, and we are picking up where we left off last week. We find ourselves in the same kind of overarching story. We are in the city of Caesarea, where Peter is standing in front of a Roman centurion and a group of Gentiles who have gathered in his home, and you can picture them there uh, all sprawled out, maybe on chairs, probably on the floor, and they're just waiting for what's going to come out of Peter's mouth. Before we go there, we need to just remember for a second how Peter got here. Because as a Jew, to be in the house of a Roman, it's not something you're supposed to do. So is Peter being a bad Jew? Let's find out. Bob shared with us last week from Acts chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 33. How Peter was in this town of Joppa, right? And he was staying with a guy named Simon. Same name, different job. Father Bob was very descriptive about what tanners do, right? And there in Simon's house, Peter has this very confusing vision of basically a zoo of animals on a bedsheet. Sounds confusing, right? It was. And right after Peter experienced this vision, three guys from Caesarea, they, they knock on the door of Simon the tanner's house, and they tell Peter that a centurion in Caesarea is looking for him. And as the story goes, uh, an angel spoke to the centurion by the name of Cornelius and told Cornelius that he needed to hear what this guy named Peter had to say. And so Cornelius, having charge of people as a centurion, he sent these three guys to Joppa in order to bring Peter back with them. What this means is that Peter's going to have to say yes. He's going to have to say yes to, to leaving Joppa, traveling to Caesarea, in order to speak to God knows who, right? Okay, as good readers of Acts, we have have noticed that the author of Acts, Luke, likes to emphasize the ironic. There's something here in this passage that's quite ironic. We have heard of Joppa before in other places in the scriptures. Uh, One story of note is the story of Jonah. You know that story. In the Old Testament, God commands Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, These were people who were not only terrible human beings, but were also Israel's oppressors. And like a normal person, Jonah refused. Heck no, right? And what does Jonah do instead? He goes down to a town called Joppa, and then he hops on a boat to get as far away as possible. Now, in our story in Acts, Peter, whose given name is Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. He's in the same town of Joppa. Same town. And it's there in Joppa, he receives a word from God to go and preach to some Romans who are, generally speaking, terrible human beings and Israel's oppressors. Sound familiar, right? This time, Jonah, rather Simon Bar-Jonah, obeys God, and that's what we have to hear about today. So let's dive in, hear what Peter has to say to these Romans. We're looking at Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. I'll read it in parts as we go along. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, turn there. I think you'll benefit from having the text in front of you. 
verses 34 to 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said to them, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We'll stop there. Our passage for today is uh, certainly one that would qualify as revelatory. Revelatory. What I mean is, it's about something that was otherwise unknown. There's revelation here. Certainly, Peter's message is revelatory to Cornelius and company, right? I mean, they needed Peter to come and speak God's word to them so they could be saved. But we need to also understand that that, uh, this is revelatory to Peter as well. In this whole circumstance, God is preaching to Peter as much as Peter is preaching to anyone else. And so Peter learned something from the Lord in this moment. And that's why he says right off the bat, truly I understand. Truly I understand. I didn't get it a few days ago. Now I get it. What does he get? What does he understand? What's been revealed to him? That God shows no partiality. God does not do favoritism. He doesn't do bias. He doesn't do prejudice or partisanship. God shows no partiality. Now, for Peter to say that, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. What that means is that at one point, namely a day or two ago, he thought that God did show partiality. Have you ever watched the the, the TV show The Crown? You know, that show on Netflix about Queen Elizabeth? It's a good one. There's an episode in in season four where Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, her husband, are uh, sitting in their uh, sitting area and they're talking about their family. All right, and Philip turns to Elizabeth and without any hesitation at all, he tells Elizabeth that his favorite child is Princess Anne. (laughs) They've got four children, all right? Now, Queen Elizabeth is very taken aback by this. This is not proper. It doesn't seem right to her. But Philip tells her in his very gruff manner of speaking, any honest parent would admit to having a favorite, right? Then, as Philip is about to then tell Elizabeth who her favorite child is, she cuts him off because she doesn't want to hear how she might have a favorite. No more nonsense. And nevertheless, though, the rest of the episode is Queen Elizabeth trying to figure out Do I actually have a favorite? And then if so, uh, who it is? And by the end of the episode, turns out Philip was right. She does. It's kind of human nature, though, right? Even the best parents. I'm not sure who they are. None None of you here. But even the best parents have to guard against this, right? It can be really damaging to children. Maybe some of you have experienced what that's like. Whether the favoritism or the lack thereof. What is it that that makes the child the favorite? What is it? We might think it's behavior, like good or bad behavior. I don't think that's it. I think it more than likely has to do with whether or not the child was what you wanted, whether girl or boy, or, or maybe whether the child resembles you or doesn't resemble you, whether in physical appearance or in uh, personality or maybe even their abilities and desires for their life. But isn't it twisted to think that that a parent who has created his or her children all the same, it's pretty much the same mechanics, 
Okay? Turns out has a favorite among them. We know the story of uh, Joseph, right? The favorite of Jacob, the one with the many-colored robe. We're right to be a bit appalled by that. And the point is this. God is not like that. God is not like us in that regard. God does not show partiality. How is it that that Peter came to understand that that uh, is actually the case, that God doesn't show partiality? Did, Did God show up to him? Is there something we missed in this text where God shows up in secret and says to Peter, Peter, I just want you to know I don't show favoritism. He doesn't tell Peter this. He doesn't. Instead, he shows Peter this. He shows him, right? What we know, we need to go back to to Peter's vision, right? This vision of a a farm on a blanket, all right? Peter was up on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house praying, and while he's praying, he gets hungry. Happens to the best of us. When all of a sudden, in this vision, he sees something like a sheet, a bed sheet, being lowered from heaven, and there are all kinds of animals in the sheet, all kinds, all kinds. And he heard a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, as you know, the Mosaic law had all sorts of restrictions about what a Jew could eat and what a Jew could not eat. We know this as kosher. It's still around. There were good animals for food. Those were called clean. And then there were animals that Jews were not allowed to eat, and those were called unclean. We can find these requirements in Leviticus chapter 11 and in Deuteronomy chapter 14, for example. Cows are good, sheep are good, chickens are good, fish are good, locusts and grasshoppers are good. No pigs. No camels, not sure if you were tempted. No rock badgers or rabbits, no mole rats or mice. No reptiles. No eagles or birds of prey. No insects without jointed legs above their feet. And no shellfish, right? The Jews were actually supposed to consider these animals detestable. That's the word that's used. Detestable. Strong language, I would say. Uh, do you guys know, um, you know, if you go to McDonald's or maybe to, to Chuck E. Cheese, how they have those ball pits that kids can jump in? Those are nasty, Right? <laughs> Those were nasty before COVID. I think they fit the definition of detestable, all right? Well, I want you to picture one of those, okay? Picture one of those, and instead of the net at the bottom that holds all the balls in, picture a sheet, and instead of all the multicolored balls, picture all the unkosher animals you can think of, all right? That's Peter's vision. When God says to Peter, go ahead and jump into the cesspool ball pit, or rather, Go ahead and eat every detestable animal that I'm showing you on this blanket. You can imagine how disgusting, distressing that would be. It would be hard for him to stomach. And listen, throughout the Old Testament, Jews were praised. They got honor for keeping these strict dietary restrictions. Most notably, think of Daniel, who with his friends refused to eat the king's food in Babylon. Because it wasn't kosher. Turned out they had more strength at the end of the time period than even the ones who ate all the meat of the king. And yet, even though Daniel is praised, God here in Acts 10 is is telling Peter to just disregard all of that. Go ahead. 
Treat the whole animal kingdom as your smorgasbord. So at first, this just isn't making sense to Peter. It's nauseating. But then, a day later, in the house of a Roman centurion, God shows Peter a group full of receptive Gentiles who he would have otherwise considered detestable. And then the light bulb turns on in Peter's brain. What we're seeing in verses 34 to 35 is the moment that Peter makes the connection between the vision he saw and the people who are in front of him. I get it. I get it. God wasn't talking so much about animals and what he wants me to eat as much as he was talking about people and who he wants me to love. Now, we know this is the case because of what Peter says. He doesn't say, truly, I understand that God wants us to eat whatever we want. He doesn't say that. He says, truly, I understand God shows no partiality. That's significant because, you see, the Jews, by and large, were a bit prejudiced. They just were. And they believed they had a a lawful, God-ordained reason for being that way. They were God's people. They were the ones who had God's law. God made a covenant with them, and they were the ones who were going to get the Messiah. God called them to live in an utterly unique way among the nations. And that led them to believe that, in fact, among the nations, they were utterly unique. Those Gentile people, they're not like us. God told us not to be like them. Therefore, God does not like them like he likes us. Right? Of course, that wasn't God's heart. It was never God's heart. The law itself was designed to help God's people to understand the spiritual difference between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between clean and unclean. Through these laws, God wanted his people to learn to call evil itself unclean and not to associate with it. And so in this moment of revelation in Acts chapter 10, God is teaching Peter. He's teaching Peter to reinterpret his categories of clean and unclean according to God's original intentions. And clean and unclean, as it turns out, ultimately has nothing to do with what's on the dinner plate or how much skin is between a man's legs. It has to do with the sin and evil in every human heart and God's plan, his loving plan to make every human heart clean. That's what it's about. And thus Peter says, truly I understand, finally. That God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. These Gentiles gathered in Cornelius' house, they never kept the ceremonial laws. Right? They certainly never kept the dietary laws. What that means is they never put in the effort They never put in the effort to make themselves clean before God like Peter and all his Jewish buddies had. You get that? And yet, Peter's now saying God accepts them and welcomes them as they are? 
So again, what's, what's this connection between the vision of a zoo on a blanket and these Romans sitting on the floor? Here it is. If God has invited Peter to eat whatever creatures he has made, then God too has invited Peter to associate with whatever human beings he has made, regardless of what they eat. Now it's here. We have to better understand what what Peter means when he says, anyone is acceptable to God. The word used for acceptable is the Greek word dektos, which has to do with whether or not a, a person will have dealings with another person. Will this person accept the other person as they are, or will that person have to change something before they come and have a conversation? That's the nature of being acceptable. So essentially, to to be acceptable to God means that you are in a position to be loved by God and to be shown favor by God. You can relate to one another. What Peter says is that anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. Now, Peter's emphasis is not so much on what that person does as much as he is saying the profound thing about this is that anyone can be acceptable to God. You see, to date, Peter has thought that any Jew who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. But now he realizes anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. Now, that that may not sound like much to us who, who, who kind of think of this as just second nature, but this would be extremely controversial Extremely. It would be a massive mental and emotional shift for Jews who thought that they were the only ones acceptable and for Gentiles who thought that they couldn't possibly be acceptable. It's a massive shift. Now, lest we think that that Peter is preaching universalism here, here we need to notice that Peter still lists fearing God and doing what is right as a part of being acceptable. I won't speak to that too much today, but what I want to point out is that even more than that, being acceptable to God is not the same thing as being saved by God. To be acceptable to God means that you are eligible to receive God's message of salvation. Peter is saying that that's the surprising thing. Even Gentiles are eligible to receive the message. To be saved means that you actually receive it. You actually accept God. Nevertheless, this is what Peter is emphasizing. God shows no partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. The gospel is for everyone. Everyone. And so, because Peter has this revelation, because God has preached to him about how far-reaching his love actually is, Peter then preaches to these Romans, who otherwise, it would have been a, a wasted breath. So this is what he says in verses 36 to to 43. As for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. 
And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter preaches the gospel. He probably preached a longer sermon than Luke gives us here, but but notice how he contextualizes it. Meaning he he knows who his audience is, and so he, he fits it to their needs. For one thing, he gives them more detail than he might have given a crowd of Jews Peter tells them who Jesus is. He he tells them what Jesus came to do. He tells them what Jesus will do in the future. And finally, he tells them that everyone who believes in Jesus will be forgiven, including Romans. Now, we need to acknowledge again just how revolutionary this is. It's revolutionary. It's revelatory, and it's revolutionary. Because if we we read the Gospels, we um, we can't conclude anything except that Jesus' ministry was primarily to the Jews. We do meet a few Gentiles along the way, but they are the exception. For example, in Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus was approached by a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, who who came to Jesus begging him to heal her daughter, do you know what Jesus said to her? He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Meaning, lady, I didn't come for you. Really? Jesus said that? Jesus' earthly ministry was first and foremost to Israel. We have to recognize that. It's God's plan. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, the half-breed woman, in John chapter 4, salvation comes from the Jews. You Samaritans don't know what you worship. Salvation does not come from you. However, what Jesus hints at In his dealings with the Gentiles, he makes explicitly to his disciples later on, and that is this, while salvation comes from the Jews, it is not for the Jews only. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, one of the last things he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations, right? Now, the disciples perhaps uh, could have assumed that this applied to all the nations who would then become Jewish proselytes who believed in Jesus. But through this story in Acts chapter 10, we find out that's not Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention is to offer salvation to Jew and to Gentile without difference. They're already acceptable for the message. Let's continue on, verses 44 to 46a. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now the way Luke presents this is that Peter never got to finish his sermon. Right? He never got to give the altar call, the come to Jesus moment, where you hear just as I am playing from the organ. Oh, instead, bam, the Holy Spirit just comes. 
just falls on the whole room. Now, now what does that signify? What is the, the significance of the Spirit coming? I can tell you it's more than just acceptance by God. It's more than just being considered clean by God. It signifies salvation. Salvation. A whole room of Romans got saved. Do you remember how uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, how, how Peter uh, quoted the words of the prophet Joel? And he said, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In that moment when Peter first quoted those words in, in Pe- at Pentecost, he didn't actually understand the full extent of what he was saying. You see, at Pentecost, Peter was speaking about Jews from every nation who came to Jerusalem to worship. But they were still Jews, circumcised and ceremonially clean. But now, some seven years later, in the prominent Roman city of Caesarea, Peter comes to understand that Joel's prophecy was actually broader than that. It was actually about all Gentiles, too. And so far, in the biblical story, we have just had whispers about this. Just whispers. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his family. That's a whisper. God sent Jonah to the pagans of Nineveh as if he loved them too. That's a whisper. The psalmist sang in Psalm 86, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. That's a whisper. Isaiah prophesied, nations will come to your light, O God. That's a whisper. Three Gentile kings came to the infant Jesus, and they were the first ones to worship him. That's a whisper. And so far, in the story of Acts, in the previous nine chapters, we've seen the conversion of a whole lot of Jews, and of some Samaritans, some half-breeds, and even an Ethiopian. But this moment is different. This moment is a two-by-four to the head. Something is changing in the story of redemption because here are Romans, the unconverted oppressors, gathered in a room to hear the gospel message. And this is how God breaks open the door to the whole world. It's amazing. And listen how the passage finishes. Then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. It is as if God wanted there to be no doubt in Peter's mind what he should do, right? He doesn't tell Peter to baptize them so that these people may receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit already came. Of course they have to be baptized. As John puts it, how could the sign of baptism, as John Stott puts it rather, how could the sign of baptism be denied to those who had already received the reality of the salvation which baptism points to? They go together. Now I want us to to put ourselves in Peter's shoes for just a moment. What would it be like to be Peter and so far in your life the only saved people are Jews? What would it be like to have believed that that God showed favoritism to Israel and to those who kept the Jewish law and then to see a room of Gentile people, people who have never made themselves clean a day in their lives, receive the same salvation as you 
How would that feel? I think Peter handles this scenario with great grace and courage. Responds better than I would have. And what he comes to realize is that while God did give special treatment to Israel, there is special treatment. That special treatment is not about favoritism. It's about birth order. It's about birth order. You see, in ancient times, the firstborn son got special privileges. And yet there were also special responsibilities that came with them. That's Israel. They enjoyed their firstborn status, and God used them in a mighty way. And when they sinned, they were the first to get judged. But being the firstborn is not the same as being the favorite, right? Unless you're an only child. The Jews must have confused the two. Being the firstborn is not the same as being a favorite because God does not show favoritism. He doesn't now and he never has. God's heart has always been that all people, Jews and Gentiles, firstborn and secondborn, would truly become his children. And the last sentence that Luke gives us in this passage, in verse 48, then they asked Peter to remain for some days. That is not a throwaway line. What that means is that Peter was willing to stay with them. And what that means is that Peter was willing to eat with them. And can you guess what kinds of animals were on Cornelius' table? Peter must have actually believed the gospel that he preached to them. The gospel's for everyone. The gospel's for everyone. If it weren't for this moment in Acts chapter 10, 99% of you, and me included, would not have a chance of being saved. But the gospel's for everyone. So whenever we assume that, that like the Jews, God prefers us to someone else, or maybe even that God prefers someone else to us, we do not have the heart of Jesus. We have a very human heart because the gospel's for everyone. There are no categories of people whom God does not love and accept. There are no people who you know or don't care to know whom Jesus did not die for because the gospel is for everyone. As Paul will write many decades later to a group of Romans, not in Caesarea, but in Rome itself, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Amen?